We'll be looking in Acts chapter 2 this evening, verse 46 for our text. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. If you want to put your thumb there, a finger there, and turn over to Luke 15, we'll be heading over there in a little while and referring to some passages there as well. Uh, <clears throat> we've been in a series I've called uh, The Four Pillars of Our Faith on uh, uh, Sunday nights, and tonight we get to the last one, and that is the pillar of propagation. We have seen the, the pillar of participation, how that the Jerusalem church was all in one accord and in one place, and there was unity among them. So it was no surprise then that there was unction as well, as the word of God went forth with great power so that many people were saved. Uh, there was then uh, uh, the pillar of proclamation as we saw uh, that critical factor of the preaching of the word of God. And uh, that's a big, big part of what we do as churches. Unity is important. We need to get people involved and active. And, and uh, we also need always to be faithful in the preaching of the word of God. There was a pillar of preservation. And we talked about how important it is to get people connected and involved and uh, that how important that fellowship is and keeping them and seeing somebody that's missing maybe and reaching out to them, discipling them is a big part, obviously, of what we do. And tonight is the last one, uh, the pillar of propagation, how that these people reproduce themselves in the kingdom work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's right here in our text. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily. Doesn't that have a sweet, sweet sound? The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, in order for that to happen... The ministry of the Jerusalem church obviously had to be moved outside of, of uh, uh, their gatherings, whatever they were. Uh, we'd almost uh, say, in fact, I almost said it had to be moved outside their building, but of course they didn't have a building. <laughs> they met in the temple, they met at uh, Solomon's portico, they met in people's houses, they met in the streets, but uh, they didn't have a building. That might have actually helped them a little bit back in those days, I don't know, but uh, I know one thing, they did not just confine the ministry of their church to their groups, their organized structure, their meetings, their gatherings. They managed to spread the message of Jesus Christ through their workplace uh, and even throughout their lives. We saw that right there on the day of Pentecost when this was noised abroad, the Bible says. Such a critical, critical part of all the things that happened. As the people went out into the streets of Jerusalem, spreading the news of what God had done and how God had moved and how God had worked. And the Lord was with them as they went. As they were going then, they were proclaiming the truth of the gospel. One of the many things that we invented back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s was uh, the little commuter communication, commuter communication uh, that uh, involved putting the little signs in the back of your windshield. Do you remember when you used to see them? They first came out with the one that said, Baby on Board. Remember that? And I've, actually, I've begun to see those kind of surfacing again here lately. And for a long time, I didn't understand what that meant at all. I, I just didn't understand the thinking behind that. I, 
why would you, I mean, it's not like we're all out there, you know, going to mow somebody down and all of a sudden we see a sign and, no, I'm not going to get them as a baby. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's how it was, I didn't understand it. And finally, I had one of my EMT church members explained it to me. So that was just a notice to rescue workers. If you have a crash and somebody's incapacitated, you want them to know there's supposed to be a baby there. And, and uh, so that was a very good thing. But of course, it uh, it quickly morphed. <laughs> Before long, we were seeing signs that said "mother-in-law in Trump," you know, or <laughs> ex-boyfriend under the seat, nobody on board. <clears throat> uh, but then there was the one that said, "Who cares? Who cares?" Well, if God were into commuter communication. He had put a sign around the neck of every person on this planet that says, Caution, precious to God. Caution, precious to God. The lost are indeed the traffic in our lives, and it's really not so much whether we recognize that, because we do. They're our associates at work, our, our neighbors, our friends, our family. They're also our enemies, they're criminals, they're presidents and mayors and governors, criminals and thugs. The lost are all around us. And it's not so much whether we recognize it, but what we do about it, what we do about it. This is kind of a follow-up, I guess, in a way, to the message that uh, I preached this morning when I originally uh, put these series together and laid them out. It wasn't until uh, just recently that I said, hey, those are kind of going to go together. Uh, you think I plan everything out, but I don't. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, the Holy Spirit is planning things out. And I can come, sometimes I can see it. Sometimes I can't. This is one of those times that I can. Because we saw this morning what an important task it is that Jesus has given us to sow the seed of the gospel. Sowing the seed. He did not put swords in our hands. He put seeds in our hands. To, show, to, the, to spread, to sow around the world. But tonight it's a little bit different. As we think about the personal way, and we see a very involved way where we can go about actually duplicating ourselves spiritually. Producing fruit in the sense that we lead somebody else to Christ. And the definitive sub substance of that is found in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus was facing the condemnation of the Pharisees because he associated with sinners. In fact, that's exactly what they said. They said, how can this, this man claims to be a holy man? This man claims to be the Messiah, but how could he be the Messiah when he associates with the people that he associates with? Just look at who he hangs around. Publicans, sinners, prostitutes. Goes to parties all the time. Just look at him. How can he be the Messiah? Well, in Luke chapter 15, we're going to head over there because we're going to see uh, these three great stories that Jesus told that was confronting then that exact mindset. It's the who cares mindset. It's the I could care less kind of mindset because that's exactly 
what was going on with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so he's going to confront that spirit and show them what they instead should be doing and in fact demonstrate what he was doing and therein show us what we need to be doing. Let's talk a little bit about their careless attitude of the religious leaders. We say, well, how in the world could people be religious and get to the point where they actually did not care about anybody else at all? How could they get to that point? Well, there was a couple of strong things that led them in that direction. First of all, they experienced some cultural pressure. You see, in their day, it was simply not proper to associate with a person they considered to be a sinner. A sinner was not just something that somebody did as a practice. They would not say, we're all sinners. In fact, the Jewish people today, even to this day, if you look at their religious writings and their uh, documentation about what they believe, uh, they do not proclaim themselves to be sinners. In fact, they very plainly say that by keeping the law, you can, in fact, make yourself be righteous. I read a Jewish rabbi defending his faith against the evangelical Christianity, and he actually made this statement. He said, if preachers want to stand up and preach to their people and tell them they're all sinners, he said, that's fine. They ought to know. That's exactly what he said. I would never say that to my people. So you see, they were ridiculing the very idea that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What they saw in the New Testament has not changed very much. And so what Jesus was facing with the religious leaders was their cultural pressure. They considered sinners. It was the title. That was that person who did not keep the law. That person who had been expelled from their seminaries. That person who was not permitted in their worship services. Those people who, by their association with Gentiles and others, in their way, had disqualified themselves from following after God. What do you do with people like that? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It especially, you see, related to eating together. Now, you know about the Jewish dietary laws, but do you know that the Jews could not, by law, enter into the home of a Gentile? The very idea that they'd go in the door, sit down at a table, and eat with them. No. But that same prohibition... They passed on to the people they considered to be sinners, even though they might be Jewish. So when they say that Jesus, this man receives sinners, this man goes into the home of sinners, this man sits and eats with sinners, they said he could not possibly be a good man or a religious man, not the Son of God, not the Messiah, because of who he hung around with. Then there was also their theological beliefs. They had a system of belief that encouraged, in fact, them to have the attitude that they had. That wasn't the belief system that God had given them. The law of Moses was perfect. The law of Moses provided the court of the Gentiles. In the temple, separated from the rest of the temple, of course, by the middle wall of partition, that low wall that, that separated them out, but still there was the court of the Gentiles. God had established the temple to be a house of prayer for all peoples, for all nations. It was that very place that he had to run the buyers and the sellers out of because he said, 
you have taken my place that I called a house of prayer for all people. And yet you cared so little about the Gentiles that you've taken their place and turned it into a den of thieves, a place of business. You see, their system of beliefs had so centered in the idea that God loved the righteous and he hated sinners and he loved the Jews and, and he hated those who, who were not Jewish. He, he loved the people who followed his law. He hated those who didn't follow his law. It would be easy for us to think that we're exempt from those kind of pressures, but really we're not. We're not. cultural view of separation is still very powerful and it's hard for us as Christian people to really interact with people who aren't Christians to fellowship with them to socialize with them knowing that they don't share our beliefs they don't share our values they do things maybe that make us uncomfortable <laughs> uh, we probably do things that make them uncomfortable but uh, you know we just we just don't interact very well most of us, we have a circle of friends, and all of them are Christians. But do we see in our passage, you see the whole thing is predicated upon the fact that Jesus was not just hanging out with the 12 disciples. Jesus was not just hanging out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, although he did spend a lot of time there. Jesus was also going home with Zacchaeus. Jesus was also sitting there in a chair and letting Mary Magdalene wash his feet. Jesus interacted in a way that was considered scandalous with lost people. I understand about separation, but we need to ask ourselves tonight as if our theological philosophy is correct if it causes us to separate ourselves from lost people and makes it difficult for us then to interact with them in a way that can build relationships that God can use to share the gospel. Would we be tonight with the Pharisees on the murmuring fringe or would we be with Christ? <laughs> now, that's a good question for us. So you see, when we talk about, oh, I could care less, or who cares, uh, understand their attitude was that they had the correct spirit. Uh, they didn't just do it. They believed it was the right thing to do. They had separated themselves from sinful people. They wanted nothing to do with them. God hated them. We hate them. God won't have anything to do with them. Neither were we. And if Jesus was a holy man of God, he wouldn't have anything to do with them either. That's their whole argument. And so Jesus sets out then in Luke chapter 15 to correct this. And he makes some points then about God's perception of the sinner. Why would a holy and righteous God care for and seek after sinners? Well, there's some stories there. He tells a story of the man who had a hundred sheep. And as he counted them, when they came into the fold that night, only 99 was there. One was lost. And Jesus said he left the 99 and went out seeking for the one that was lost. And he, saw, and he kept looking for it until he found it and brought it safely into the fold. And he rejoiced. 
He bid his neighbors and his friends to come and rejoice with him because the sheep that's lost was found. He told the story of a woman who had a necklace that bore those ten coins. And whether it was around her neck or around her head, it just depends on which historian you read after. That they had those uh, necklaces or headpieces that contained those coins. And, and she had ten of them. One of them was lost. And she went looking for it until she found it. And when she found it, she called her friends to come celebrate with her. Because she had found what had been lost. There was a man who had lost a son. The prodigal son then who had left his father. Taken his inheritance. Wasted it. The father saw him from afar off and went running out to meet him. Through a party. Invited all his friends. My son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Put the robe on him, the ring on his finger. Restored him to his position. Three great stories. Now we can see a lot of things about this. Uh, first of all, I think we can see in, this, in the telling of these three stories that Jesus is emphasizing that seeking the lost is not a chore to God. Uh, it is a heartfelt pursuit. The lost are lost to him. And the lost have worth and value to God. Each of these things were things of value. A sheep ha was a thing of great value. A woman who had only ten coins uh, and she's lost one of them would certainly be concerned if one of them was lost. Who can place the value of a son that was lost and is now found? The lost have not at all diminished in their value to God. Not a bit. They're still of value to God. Remember, I told you from the very beginning, if we could put us, if God was into commuter communication, He could put a sign on everyone that says precious to God. Remember that if they're lost, they're lost to God. They're lost to God. They're separated from God. They're alienated from God. They're helpless and hopelessly lost. Whoever wrote Little Bo Peep was either doing so as a satire or they were ignorant of the nature of sheep. Wasn't it Little Bo Peep? Or was it Mary had a little lamb? Which one was it? Leave them alone, they said, and they'll come home. Well, that's Mary had a little lamb. So, uh, yeah. Uh, leave them alone. He'll come home. Wagging his tail behind them. Yeah. Whichever one it was. <laughs> that is not what a sheep will do. Sheep has no sense of direction. It'll never find its way home. Will a coin find itself? No, unless you're looking for something else. <laughs> that's, all, that's the only time I'm looking for my keys. Oh, there it is. Ah. Uh, will a coin find itself? No. The son was coming back 
He was not coming back to be a son. He was coming back to be a servant. It was not something that they were just going to leave alone. The situation was going to correct itself. But instead we have the father running out to meet the son. The woman searching for the lost coin. The shepherd searching for the lost sheep. You see, things that are lost are helplessly and hopelessly lost in and of themselves. And add in one more thing. Paul Harvey, remember the rest of the story? All you gray-headed folks here do tonight and uh, some of the others. Uh, Paul Harvey told of the 1987 America's Cup team from Italy. Uh, they, they were on a trip uh, through the Australian outback, the Italian team. The designer Gucci, did I say that right? Goosey? Gucci? Had outfitted them with leather jackets, pants, shoes, even wallets. They wanted to see a kangaroo while they were there, and they did. Their Jeep hit one. And the team, of course, rushed out. One of uh, the team members decided to take his Gucci jacket, leather jacket over, and, and put it on the kangaroo. And you're ahead of me. About that time, to their amazement, this supposedly dead Gucci-clad kangaroo jumped up and ran off into the bush. And by the way, the keys to the Jeep were in the pocket of the jacket. And now you know the rest of the story. Uh, Let's remind ourselves something about those who are lost tonight. They're not merely stunned in their sins. When I say they're helplessly lost and hopelessly lost, it is because the Bible says they are dead in trespasses and sins. They're not going to revive. They're not going to go jumping back up somehow with the keys to the kingdom in their pocket. It's not going to happen. They're dead in trespasses and sins. But the really neat part of the story, and the one that's really amazing about it all, is, is that heaven rejoices in the recovery of the loss. Now, here's a guy that's lost a hundred sheep. Or lost, lost, he has a hundred sheep. He's lost a sheep. I'm sorry, I'm a little off tonight. He's got a hundred sheep. He's lost one. He goes out and he finds it. Now, that's a good thing. Any cattleman in the church tonight could identify with that. Uh, if you've got a little puppy dog that comes up listen, missing, chances are you're going to go out and look for it. That's the reality. But when you find a sheep, when you find a lost cattle, if you find even a lost little dog, are you really going to call everybody in the neighborhood and throw a party? I found my sheep. I mean, you'd be glad and... You see, there, there would be an expectation that the Pharisees would hear that and say, well, I wouldn't throw a party over finding one sheep. My goodness, that's... A woman who's lost ten coins finds one. Is she going to throw a party? No. Well, she doesn't want everybody to even know hardly except that circle of friends that she trusted to call in. She, she's certainly glad she's found it, but is she going to have a big celebration over one coin? You can expect these religious leaders to be turning their nose up at that. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have us, I wouldn't celebrate something like that. It's just one coin. That's nothing to celebrate over. 
And just in case, after he had gotten through those stories then, there might have still been a little bit of wondering. He injected the story of the older brother into the last one. Just so they'd make sure that, yes, he was indeed calling them out on it. Because they might listen to the story of, of this son being restored and they'd say, I would never do that. That father has lost his mind. How could he do something like that? He's going to put, put him right back in that position and he'll turn right around and do it again. You know he will. To restore him, not only uh, to a position, not only to allow him to work for him, but, well, I would never do that, they'd say. And they would sympathize, of course, with the older brother who got mad, saying, Dad never threw me a party. <laughs> I never got to celebrate with my friends. You never let me kill a fatted calf. Not even a scrawny one. I mean, I never, I never had anything like that. You see, Jesus was making it very, very plain to them that they were the ones who were missing the boat. They'd missed it all. Aren't you glad that the Bible says again and again and again? Luke 15. That there is joy in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. Whenever you were saved, I don't know when it was, you might have been saved as a child like I was. You might have been saved as a young adult. You may have only been saved for a few weeks. Let me tell you something. When you were saved, there was rejoicing in heaven over you and over me. Because that's the God we serve. That's the Savior we have. He rejoices over one. One what? One sinner. One sinner that is saved, one person that turns back to God. What an incredible display of compassion that God has given us tonight. From that very first of the story, we can see some things in, some very practical things, that first story about the lost sheep that we can apply to our own efforts around us. Uh, first of all, we see there is leaving. See, if we're going to involve ourselves in this task with Jesus Christ of seeking the lost, uh, then we're going to have to leave the 99. Uh, that means sometimes, folks, we're just going to have to get out of our holy huddles just a little bit. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone and, uh, you know, get out into that unknown and dangerous place where we walk up to people we don't know And we make a conscious effort. Um, when we come to church on Sundays, and uh, it is a wonderful time. We announce our services. We put them out on the big sign out by the door. We put them on Facebook. We, we'd put them everywhere in the world. But let's just understand, most lost people in this county are not going to come here unless somebody, <laughs> somebody, seeks them out and invites them. And in order to do that, we're going to have to leave our comfort zone and reach out to some of those lost people. 
then there's not only the leaving, but there's also the finding. That is, he keeps going until he finds it. There's a sense of persistence here. It's not just that occasional trip that we make uh, to try to get to know that person that we don't know. Our world is increasingly skeptical and even hostile toward the religious uh, uh, message at all, and especially toward the religion of Christianity. Uh, They don't want to hear it. And I use that term specifically because that's the way they see it. Christianity is simply one religion among many other religions and they're not interested in any of them. Somehow we're going to have to get past that barrier and many times that means we're going to have to stay around long enough to establish the validity of our testimony. That neighbor that you've been living by for 25 years may have been watching you this whole time (laughs) and you didn't even know it. You might work with them You might be around that person for years. Never think that your testimony ever had the slightest impact on their life. But it does. There's bearing. Jesus talked about how that when they find the sheep then he puts it on his shoulder. We might need to bring somebody (laughs) to church. We might need to walk with them down the aisle. We might need to take the Bible and help disciple them. We might need to work with them while these old things are passing away and all things are becoming new. There's bearing. And, of course, there's a rejoicing. There's a lot of churches that are strangely barren of rejoicing. (laughs) I'm glad this is not one of them, aren't you? I tell you, I, I love rejoicing. I love seeing people saved. Uh, I love doing what I did tonight. I love baptizing folks. I just like it. I don't mind telling you. I, I like it. I like it a lot. And uh, but it's up to us to go looking for them. And then to rejoice, celebrate when they're found. The Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2 had that kind of infectious excitement. When you got around them, you caught it. You caught it. There was something happening there. And though it might not be exactly clear what it was, there was something there. The Bible would tell us by the end of this time period that they would be in the, in the temple, they would be praising God and having favor with all the people. There was something very, very exciting, something contagious about what they were doing. And if I have a prayer for Faith Baptist Church tonight, it's that God would help us become more spiritually (laughs) contagious. I say spiritually because after all, we did just come through the flu epidemic, amen? (laughs) I tell you, we had way too much of the wrong kind of contagiousness. I want our faith to be contagious. And that happens when there is rejoicing. When we see sinners, when we see people who are lost, people who are out of church, we see them as precious to God and we want to reach out to them. And we make them feel welcome. We let them feel the love of Jesus Christ, the compassion. We show them the real us because we're honest. Honest. And the fact is, 
we got a place for sinners because we're all sinners too. Yeah. Save sinners, yes. Save by grace. Thank God for His grace. We got a place. We want to be the ones who are in the crowd, in the midst of things with Jesus. Not out on the Pharisee side. Saying, I don't want nothing to do with them. And that takes the work of God's grace in all our life. You put those things together this evening and we see then why the Jerusalem church expanded the way it did. Why God blessed them. Why God used them. I'm not telling you they were a perfect church. They weren't. I'm not telling you we need to go back and do everything that they did. We don't. But I am telling you that these four pillars do not erode with the passing of time. They're still as real tonight as they were then. And they will work in this town like it worked in their town. Let's stand together.